0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We are continuing on with our sermon series entitled Words of Life, A Theology of Words. We're, we're leaning in together and asking the Lord the one who makes all things new in Jesus, that he would transform not just our actions, not just our interactions, but our words. And we tried to frame from very early on that that words are not simply sounds that we make. It's not just a a voice that we give. Words bring meaning. I used early on the example of Helen Keller. A, a, a young girl that was from a very early age, 11 months or so, she was blind and deaf and had no way of understanding the world around her and no way of communicating with the world around her until one day a teacher, who had begun drawing letters in her hand, took her outside, she placed her hand under a faucet of cold running water and began to spell on her hand W A. T-E-R, water. And Helen Keller in her memoir recounts that from that day her world expanded. She could finally understand and articulate what this cool bubbling liquid was that was flowing over her hand. It wasn't just something, it was water. And likewise, as we experience the world now in light of Jesus, we are asking the Lord to give us words that we might more fully understand and experience the world with Him in it as our King, and also to communicate that world to others. Now there's, there's a saying that everybody learns about words from a, a really early age, A saying that revolves around sticks and stones. What's the saying? That was, that was, all right, we're going to scrap speaking as peacemakers, and instead we're going to learn how to enunciate. (laughs) Like I've got hearing problems, but I heard, you guys have either started drinking early in the morning, or, or we need to try this again, all right? How about this? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Great job, guys. You guys should be so proud of yourself. Right? We, we learned that phrase from early on. It was like, I feel like I remember it. Like, in third grade, we would like stand up at the beginning of the class. We would say the Pledge of Allegiance, and I feel like then we would repeat that saying. Right? And, and here's, here's what every kid learns. It's a lie, right? It's an utter lie. Our parents tell us we won't ever lie to you, then they say something like that, and we find out our parents lie to us all the time, right? Words words are powerful. We, We try and pretend like they are small and insignificant and limited, but they're powerful, and that's not just something we learn by experience, it's also what we find in the depths of Scripture, As a matter of fact, words are so powerful that words create. Genesis chapter 1, the first words in the Bible are the story of God doing one thing. Speaking. And out of His spoken word we find creation. I've been kind of trying to hammer this home every week. When God spoke, something came out of nothing. Order. And meaning came out of what was formless and void. Light came out of darkness. Vegetation, food, provision came out of where there was once none. Life came into being. The Lord God spoke and He created what was good and very good. And then we find the words of Satan. And his words have a type of creating power as well. Satan speaks and he creates doubt in the goodness of God. Satan speaks and he creates confusion for the woman where there was once clarity. Satan speaks and he instills pride into the man and woman. Satan speaks and he creates self-centeredness. Satan speaks and ultimately he creates and makes division and blame and hiding and disunity. Church, hear this. Words create. The question is, what are words creating? Some words make conflict and war And some words make peace. I was watching the other day a a weigh-in for a a boxing match. And if you've ever seen this before, the boxing match takes place typically a day or so before. They do these weigh-ins just to make sure that both of the two contestants kind of fall within the parameter of the weight class that they're in. And so you watch this and it it ought to be just a pretty kind of clear cut and dry factual type of thing. One person, one boxer steps on the scale, they make weight, fantastic. The next guy steps on the scale, they make weight, fantastic. You take a little photo for promotion purposes and you go your opposite way. right? But what inevitably happens, if you've seen this before, is at some point in time during the weigh-in or the photo, one of the boxers starts to speak to the other one. And, and you just know that as soon as one of them begins to speak, you, you might as well just kind of go, uh uh, uh-oh. This is about to go badly, because the words just multiply, and tensions rise, and inevitably the boxing match starts at the weigh-in rather than in the ring. Right? The the words that they speak do nothing but breed conflict. They're words that make war, unless you think that's just kind of an extreme example. There are times in my own home in marriage where I can tell that from the moment that Rachel and I start speaking to each other, when our hearts are not in a good posture, it is all downhill from there. In all honesty, the only hope that we have is to stop speaking to each other. Because as we speak to one another, tensions rise. Self-defense and protection rise. Angst and anger rise. Stress rise. And the words simply create more and more and more conflict. And on the flip side, there are times where I am hurting and broken and where Rachel's heart is in the place where her words from the first syllable she speaks brings comfort. It brings peace. It brings joy. Words create and they either create conflict and war or they create peace and life. We were created to speak like our God that spoke words of life and peace, but instead we now, in light of the fall, speak like our father, Satan. We speak words that are Conflict producing. They create division and strife and envy and rivalry. Our words wound. Our words separate. They sow doubt and insecurity in one another. And the only hope that we have is that Christ redeems our words. That he redeems and reconciles us and allows us to speak out of that new creation. That new space to speak words instead of peace. This morning we're going to look at words of war and words of peace. We're going to look at the words that were natural to us before Christ and we're going to ask the Lord to give us the words that ought now in Christ be natural to us if we believe the gospel are natural to us to us. That's our passage here in James chapter 3 this morning, but we, before we get into 13 through 18, I'm going to just jump back to the beginning of the chapter and read over us the beginning of James, likely the brother of Jesus, writing to the church that has already been dispersed because of persecution. That James, he writes these words starting at the beginning of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. For if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James, in all of chapter 3, is establishing for us the power of the tongue, the power of words. He also establishes for us that the tongue, our speech, is perhaps the last part of our body that fully comes under and is transformed as we believe the gospel. Listen, I want you to hear this. I'm not primarily preaching a sermon series on words and the tongue because I want you to speak better. I'm preaching a sermon series on words and the tongue because if your words are redeemed by the gospel, then you and I will be able to fully experience and encounter, find peace, rest, and hope in the Gospel. If the tongue is the last thing redeemed by the hope of Jesus, then let us set our minds on redeeming the tongue so that we can be fully underneath of the hope that comes from Christ Jesus. James sets the stage for the power of words And the need for redemption of our words. And then he goes on in verse 13 to transition not just about the tongue generally. But two types of wisdom and words that flow out of our mouths. Wisdom and words that are from above. And wisdom and words that are from below. We're going to begin by looking at the wisdom and words from below or what I'm calling Wisdom and war, or I'm sorry, the wisdom and words of war. And James, like a good teacher, he shows us both the root of the problem, the root of our words, and the fruit of our words. And so let us begin as we ought with the root. We're going to start in verse 14 as James talks about wisdom and words of war. He says this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Church, hear this. Wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and even from our enemy. Words of war come, the root is, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. Now when I use the word heart most of us have kind of an image that is conjured up in our mind. Right when we use kind of from the heart in our language today we mean from the emotion, right? From the feels, all the good feels. Right, but the heart when when the biblical writers talk about the heart they're not just talking about emotion. They're talking about the the place of control in our life. The very seat of our deepest desires and pursuits where our hope is founded. The heart controls who we are and what we do and certainly how we speak. And James says from that heart comes Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That word jealousy, when we hear it, typically conjures up negative images and emotions. But, but the original Greek word for jealousy here is not in and of itself a negative word. You'll oftentimes hear it translated as zealously. Right? To be zealous after something simply means to be passionate to have a burning desire in your heart. It's not, in and of itself, negative. We hear our God as being called a jealous God. He is a zealous God. He is passionate for us. He longs for us. But James says that the root of words and wisdom of war is not just jealousy or zealous. It's bitter jealousy. Bitter means sharp. This is a type of passion or desire that pierces. It's the type of passion and desire that is wielded like a sharp two-edged sword that cuts, that attacks in order to take what it desires. Selfish ambition is like it. The word selfish ambition relates to a day laborer, like someone that hires themselves out with the intent of financial gain. Again, not inherently a negative thing, but the connotation is that this is someone so intent on getting a little bit more of what they have little of, that they are willing to do anything and that their sole focus is on getting what they desire. Let me sum up for you the root of words of war, the root that comes from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The root of wisdom and words of war is a heart that is lacking. The root of words of war is a heart that is lacking. Now, if you're listening closely, you you probably ought to at that moment go, that's it? That doesn't seem that bad. A heart that is lacking. But that's what James is trying to say. These terms aren't inherently sinful. They're not necessarily immoral or to be despised. But like a fire that leaves a fireplace and spreads into the house, it burns the entire house down when they are inflamed and out of place when our heart feels lacking when our heart needs to be filled and we don't know where to go to get it filled it's at that point in time where our wisdom and our action and our words become destructive think of this for a second When we speak ill of other people, when we gossip, when we demean, when we self-righteously judge other people, we do so out of a place of lacking, right? We demean other people, why? Because we feel a sense of lack of value and worth, and so in order to make ourselves feel better, we tear other people down. It's not typically because we despise other people. Do you know why we are sharp with our words? Why we speak ill? Why we demean other people? It's not oftentimes out of hatred. And if it is out of hatred, it's typically out of hatred for ourselves. We speak ill of other people because we find ourselves lacking and we hate when we are lacking. And so to build ourselves up, we try and push other people down when we gossip we do so because we don't feel included and we desperately want to feel included and so gossiping makes us feel like we are in the know when we judge other people we do so because we feel our own righteousness is lacking and so we tear other people down with judgment in order to build us up. When we believe we don't have, we use our actions and our words to take, to win, to capture what it is we desperately need. And it doesn't usually look nefarious. Our words, even the words that make war and bring conflict are oftentimes seasoned in such a way that they sound kind and inviting. But when they come from a place of lacking, hear this, they will create war. So what do I mean by words of war? What's the fruit of these? Well, James goes on and he tells us in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Disorder and every vile practice is the fruit of these words. The word disorder literally means disturbance and upheaval. Literally, uh, it's a word picture that means you can't stand correctly. The word, if you go back into ancient Greek manuscripts, is oftentimes used to describe what the battlefield looks like when the fighting is done. It's chaos. It's catastrophe. Nothing is as it ought to be, and we feel helpless to put it back together. Right? There was a song that I learned when I was a kid. I think it was about an egg. There was always an egg in a school book, but I'm not sure why we decided it was an egg. There was apparently a man named Humpty Dumpty who was also an egg. And he sat on a wall. He had a great fall. And all the king's horses, I don't know why the king's horses were trying to put the egg back together. But all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Right? Right? That's what words of war create. They create a level of brokenness, a level of chaos that we don't know how to put back together. Words of war are like my three-year-old trying to play Jenga. There is no skill. There is no technique. The first time he touches the tower, it is destroyed utterly. This is what it means that our words create disorder. They create disorder. It's literally the opposite of what our Lord God does. His words create order. Our words simply deepen and reinforce the curse that has occurred because of our sin and rebellion. They create disorder, and every vile practice, every evil, every worthless practice is what our words of war create. So I'm hoping that you're sitting here going, man, that sounds good, Michael. I'm buying what you're selling me. But I don't speak words like that. I don't speak words that create disorder, at least not very often. I certainly don't speak words that create every vile practice, right? My, my words aren't like that. My words are typically fairly kind. They're typically fairly loving. But church, I, I want you to do this, because this is what James is calling us to do. Don't judge your words based on what you think of your words. Instead, trace your words back to the root condition of your heart. If your words are spoken out of a place of lacking, out of a place where you lack value, where you lack control, where you lack contentment, where you lack joy, where you lack peace, and if your words are a part of you desperately trying to find those things, then your words will ultimately create conflict disorder disturbance disunity and chaos so pause church and let me ask you the question where is the typical condition of your heart when you wake up in the morning where do you find yourself Because I oftentimes find myself, even from the first moments of the day, anxious, fearful, thinking of all the things I need to do for the day in order to be a success, thinking of all the things I wish I had, thinking of all the sleep I wish I would have gotten. Where is the typical condition of your heart Because I'm fearful, and in fact, I think I'm pretty sure that most of us constantly find ourselves lacking. And it's from this place that fallen wisdom and fallen words comes. But here's the good news. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For our God is not a God of confusion. Quite literally, it says, for our God is not a God of disorder, but he is a God of peace. And our God speaks words that don't bring upheaval or strife or chaos, but healing and wholeness. So let's look at those words now. Go back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If if words of war flow out of bitter jealousy and out of selfish ambition, then words of peace flow out of meekness. Right, this isn't a word that we use a lot in our culture, and when we do, it's typically not a positive word that we utilize. Meekness means lowliness. It means mildness. It means gentleness. But here's the key to the word meekness as it's used in the Bible. It's meekness, it's lowliness, it's gentleness, not out of a lack of power, but out of a restraint of power. This is what we talked about last week, church, when we said that humility is being settled underneath of the glory of our God being settled underneath of him like a beloved child It's the place where we recognize that he is great and we are not but we are greatly loved by him Right to put it another way words of war flow out of a place of lacking But words of peace come from a settled confidence in our abundance from the Lord. Let me say that again. Words of war flow out of a place of lacking. But words of peace come from a settled confidence in the abundance we have in our God. Jesus was routinely described as meek. Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat to you by the meekness and gentleness of my king, Jesus. Jesus himself said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right? We don't think of Jesus as the king of the world as lacking. The world may have thought that he was lacking, but he himself routinely spoke of how he received all that he needed from his heavenly father and he promised to give to us all that we would need from his and now our heavenly father as a matter of fact scripture says no good thing will we lack Or to put it plainly, church, the Bible says that in our Heavenly Father, in His grace and mercy, there is nothing that is good that you and I don't have. There is no place for lacking in the children of God because our Father gives us all that we need. So, where is your heart? Where's your confidence? Where's your identity? Where are you grounded at? Has your heart been united to Christ and from that place settled under the provision of your Heavenly Father? Now, now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying wake up in the morning, look at yourself and say, I am all that I need. What I'm not saying is wake up in the morning, look at yourself and say, based on my characteristics, I am worthy to be approved of by all around me. What I'm not saying is wake up in the morning and look at yourself and your skills and your knowledge and your ability and your resources and your finances and say to yourself, I need nothing more. What I'm saying is that like a child who wakes up in a crib, stands up and calls out for mom and dad. We have everything we need in our beloved father who refrains from nothing good he gives us all that is good and worthy hope-filled and pure this is what words of peace are produced from and then what does it produce go on to verse 17 but the wisdom from above it's first pure and peaceable Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's pure, it's unmixed, it's blameless. It is dedicated only those words to the Lord. It's peaceable. Literally, it it makes whole, it takes what's divided and it puts it back together. It's like taking an entire box full of puzzle pieces. And placing them in order just as they fit. And so you see at the end not a hundred different pieces, but one beautiful picture. They're gentle. They're open to reason. They're ready to be persuaded, not because they're not grounded in, in truth, but because they are ready to use their words in any way that is helpful. They're merciful. And they bring good fruits. This is covenantal language that we get from the Lord. It's the type of love that commits and gives. It's love that provides. It's love that fills up what is lacking. And they are impartial and sincere. They are honest. They're words that are safe because they are spoken truthfully. And honestly, that don't waver. They feel like a firm foundation. These are the words that a heart of settled meekness, a heart that is settled under the provision of our God, a heart that is lacking no good thing will speak. Right? They are words that unite, they don't divide. They create, they create order and peace rather than chaos and conflict. They give rather than they take. They are spoken humbly and with gentleness rather than forcefully with self-protection and pride. And Let me just pause because here's the deal. This sounds like a cotton candy sermon. It feels like, yeah, Michael, I get it. I need to not raise my voice. I need to speak gently and softly. I need to be like one of those guys that, that just is really calm and always cool and collected. Let me tell you something. Early on when I got married and I felt the Lord stirring a call into ministry for me, my wife and I sat down and we talked about it, and we essentially came to the conclusion leading by me that the Lord wasn't actually calling me into it. Can I tell you why? Because every pastor I'd ever known to that point in time was so quiet and calm. And I was so loud and brass and half the time annoying that I couldn't figure out how the Lord would ever call me into ministry. Church, I'm not, I'm not calling you, and James is not calling you, to, to speak fluffy, calm, fairy tale words. These aren't words that lack depth. They're not words that refuse to engage in difficult subjects and areas. They're not words that never rebuke or correct. These are words that regardless of whether they are encouraging or correcting, whether they are rebuking or empathizing, whether they are cheering on or whether they are helping to rebuild something that is broken, they are words that regardless of the substance of them, are flowing out of a place of knowing what we have received from our Heavenly Father, and thus they are given away to people. They are words that give to people what we have received from our Father, rather than words that seek to take from people because we are, are lacking. So let me ask you the question, church. I'm going to do the same thing I did last week. When you're disciplining your children, are you doing so out of a place of lacking? Because you lack peace. Because you lack order. Because you lack rest. When you are disagreeing with your spouse, are you speaking out of a place of lacking? Because you lack affirmation. Because you lack comfort. Because you lack contentment. When you are disagreeing with a coworker or a friend, or God forbid, Someone on Facebook. Are you doing so because you lack confidence in your position? Because you lack confidence in the sovereignty of your God? Because you lack control and so you are desperately trying to seek it in the way that you speak your word. Church, we are called to be those that speak words of peace, flowing, spilling, bubbling out of a well that is being provided by our gracious God. And what does it lead to when we speak words of peace? What does it lead to when we speak words that are from above, words that are from a place of being settled under, under our God. Well, James ends this passage in 18 telling us. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Say that again. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Righteousness is one of those Christianese words that we use a lot, but we don't really know. Right? But righteousness at its core, it's a relational word. It doesn't primarily mean to be holy or to be uh, perfect, to be super moral. Righteous is a relational word that means to be in right standing or relationship with someone. To be righteous in the sight of God means to be able to be in right relationship with Him. Not to be opposed to Him, not to be rebelled against Him, not to be separated from Him, but to be in right relationship, intimacy with Him. But see, the problem for us is that our sin and rebellion has caused a loss of relationship a loss of righteousness in all areas of our life. Our sin has caused us to be divided, separated from the Lord our God. It's why in the temple there was a thick veil between the rest of the temple and the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. We could not go in lest we be consumed because we weren't righteous before Him. Because of our sin, we weren't righteous with each other. There was a dividing line, a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between me and you. And we weren't righteous with ourselves. We were in and of ourselves, we weren't right inside. And yet, Jesus has come and he has ended the conflict that has divided us. He has ended, he has torn the veil, literally, on the day that he was crucified, torn the veil separating God and us. He tore down, Paul says, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between man and woman, between left and right, between me and you. And He has even reconciled us to ourselves. And now, out of the work, wisdom, and words of Christ Jesus, who was Himself the ultimate peacemaker, we, as His representatives, go out and we speak peace and make peace. And as we speak words of peace, a harvest of righteousness comes. Our words in Christ Jesus bring unity where there was once disunity. Our words in Christ Jesus bring peace where there was once conflict. Our words from Christ Jesus draw us and others out of isolation, and into community. Our words in Christ Jesus draw us and others into the presence of God and into joyful dependence upon Him. Church, we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to speak to our children as peacemakers. You know what your kids need? They need righteousness and not the type of righteousness that's a faux righteousness based on the fact that they follow all your directions. Your kids need true, deep righteousness. They need to be reconciled by the grace of Jesus to themselves and to you and to Him. You know what your spouse needs? They don't need the type of righteousness where they are a good wife or a good husband because they do the things that you want them to do and they make you feel good. Your spouse needs righteousness. They need to be right by the grace of Jesus with themselves. They need to be reconciled in the peace that is settled in Jesus permanently with you, and they need to be settled with the Lord your coworkers, your friends, and God forbid that person on Facebook. They need the righteousness that comes with Christ Jesus. But here's the end of the story. In order for you and for me to be peacemakers, we must be at peace. Which means what you and I most desperately need is righteousness. Right relationship to be reconciled to ourselves to one another and the lord to be peacemakers we must be at peace to bring unity we must be united to bring healing we must be healed to draw others into the family of god we must know the love and provision of our heavenly father so church, may God himself grant us the gift of being a people that have so tasted and seen of his goodness, that are so settled under his promises and provision, that we find ourselves at peace and thus our actions and wisdom and words are peacemaking that sow a harvest of righteousness. Pray with me, church.